Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Melvin. In today's episode, I speak with the remarkable Mary Lou Singleton. Mary Lou is a lifelong women's activist, mother, grandmother, midwife, and family nurse practitioner. Mary Lou has served on the board of directors of the Midwives Alliance of North America, the National Association of Certified Professional Midwives, and Women's Liberation Front. Mary Lou breaks down how women's voices have been hidden from history, an especially problematic scenario given that empowering women and mothers is the most important way to have a sane society. Female erasure in the form of opting out from the oppressed class to the oppressor class, which Mary Lou gets into, is uh, another tactic of the patriarchy to control and exploit women's reproductive capacity. So despite the dangers and risks, we must face the medical industrial complex as embodied women to counter the disturbing commodification of our bodies and minds. This is truly one of my favorite episodes, and I can't wait for you to listen and share it. I'm Mary Lou Singleton. Um, I'm a lifelong women's rights activist, and I am an apprentice-trained midwife here in New Mexico. I was very involved in national midwifery politics in, in the early 90s, back when home birth was still, um, midwifery attended home birth was still illegal in most states. I've served on the boards of the Midwives Alliance of North America and um, was involved in NACPM at the beginning of the CPM process as well, and was sat on the board of NACPM as well. I practiced as a home birth midwife for about 15 years and then went back to school and became a family nurse practitioner. And now I offer womb to tomb service as a primary care provider here in Albuquerque. What was the first flag for you in your practice working with women? When was the first time you heard about transgenderism? You know, the first time I heard about it was was back in college. At the same time I was learning about, about the existence of midwifery even. I think it was in um, 1990, I, was, I went to a small liberal arts college and I took a class called Sex and Culture. And in that class, um, it was the first time I learned about home birth midwifery in the United States, but it was also the first time I heard about this whole movement of women not identifying with their bodies. And there was a big discussion in the class where I was arguing that women shouldn't suppress their bodily functions and women should, should not be dependent on big pharma and we should be empowered by our bodies and, and be, have an embodied feminism. And most of the women in my class just jumped on me and were saying, our wombs are not what make us women, our periods are not what make us women, our bodies aren't what make us women. And I just remember sitting with that. It was like a real hit to the heart of like what's going on. And I took a lot of women's studies classes. And that time, like the late 80s, early 90s, is really when postmodernism was coming into the academy full force. And women's studies was changing to women and gender studies. Instead of feminist studies, it, it became um, more gender studies. So I was watching the creep in. And from the very beginning, felt like this is very weird. It, it's based on sex stereotypes. It seems like the opposite of women's liberation to um, say that what makes you female is your performance of sex stereotypes. But I kind of shelved it. It was like this fringe academic thing and went on to become a midwife and practice and be busy. 
And then I think it was in um, 2013, around that time that um, I was involved with Deep Green Resistance. And they were at the forefront of defending women's space in this issue. And I was watching what was happening to Rachel Ivey and to Lear Keith and this radical environmental organization that wanted to maintain true female only space and female sovereignty and the backlash they took from Earth First and, and from other radical environmentalists at the time was, was horrifying to me. And I knew in my body, this is very dangerous. This, this is a really horrible new twist of patriarchy. Wow. And so 2013 was just preceding Bruce Jenner and Right. You know, all of like what really like went super, super mainstream. Okay. So 2013, that puts it, that puts it into perspective. The Carol Downer event that you or- helped organize that you, was it, it was your event you and Megan organized? I can't remember uh, at this point. No, I organized it and invited Megan event. and Carol out. Yeah. Awesome. So that was, that was incredible. Oh my gosh. Carol Downer was just able to put so many things into perspective and just kind of outline the history. And remember one thing she brought up because um, you mentioned environmentalist groups, was the the way that environmentalist groups have um, taken on an antinatalist agenda. Right. And that have, you know, kind of pointed the finger at women to have fewer babies. Is that something that was coming up in 2013? Was that also in the mix at that point? Well, I think that's been in the mix for a really long time, even before I arrived on the planet. And um so I was involved in, in Earth First and, and um, land protection efforts in, in the early 90s. And there was a split even in that group of um, antinatalists versus um, women like myself who believe empowering mothers, empowering women is the most important way to have a sane society. If we want healthy people and, and a healthy environment in the human community, we have to center women and children, you know, and we have to have healthy mothers, where a lot of people at that time were, you know, um, recommending women get their tubes tied at age 20, recommending men get vasectomies at age 20. Um, a very antinatalist streak has always been part of the environmental movement, in, at least in my lifetime. So one of the reasons I was attracted to Deep Green Resistance and then Wolf, which was kind of an offshoot of, of, it came from some of the founders of Deep Green Resistance, was they understood the importance of autonomous midwifery and and, um, women's birth choices in the whole reproductive rights movement. So I felt like they were more holistic. So it makes sense they were also the ones defending women's sex-based rights. Well, Earth First was, I mean, around the same time they were going after GGR, Earth First kind of shifted to this like cyborg they, they went from like we're defending the forest we, we live in the forest we're living in trees that's what it was about when i when i was you know in my early 20s um to these like images of like post-apocalyptic landscapes and people having fires in the ruins like it was a, it became a very urban vision and i remember seeing the earth first journal around that time and on the back of the journal some some male artist had made it this image of kali with a huge penis. And I was just horrified at, at how, hey, like sacrilegious and uh, like, I mean, it's Kali, you did not put a penis on Kali. It's the most offensive thing you could do to this primordial goddess who is not about male energy. <laughs> it's not about lingams and, and phallic culture. You know? 
So Earth First was moving in that cyborg, transhumanist, transgender way at, this, at the same time this was happening. Oh my gosh. You know, so much to unpack. Wow. And so then, then fast forward to 2015, the open letter was written in 2014 or 2015? At the end of 2014, MANA changed their language. The Midwives Alliance of North America changed their language to, in the core competencies document, erase the word woman, erase the word mother, basically state that, um, you know, men can give birth and women who have decided their men are good home birth candidates, regardless of, they, they did not mention um, the safety aspects of cross-sex hormones or, or removing breasts or severe body dysphoria. It was just the celebration of transgenderism and um, complete erasure of women, female biology, the word mother. So that happened at the end of 2014. So my, my dear friend, Michelle Pacino and I were watching this happen. I had been on the MANA board at the beginning of like around 2000, a few years around there. M Michelle had been on the MANA board of like 2008, 2009. And she said even around that time, it was coming into the birth justice work and into MANA. She was also on the board of Sister Song. She's a, a woman of color from Northern New Mexico. And she was watching this come in through the funding streams into the social justice and reproductive justice world. That's where it infiltrated. When she was on the MANA board, it was still the old guard and everyone was like, no, we don't have time for that language. That's like, that's not making sense to us. By 2014, they'd achieved the coup and, and got them to change the language. So we first tried to discuss things with them, got no, no feedback other than you're hateful and bigoted. So Michelle and I drafted the open letter together and then reached out to the midwives we knew for signers. And it was a statement of asking for the precautionary principle to be honored here, defending female biology, defending the, the fact that women are oppressed on the basis of their sex, not their gender. All, you know, people can read the open letter at womancenteredmidwifery.com. And we had some pretty heavy hitter signers, First Nations midwife Goodie Cook, Ina Mae Gaskin, Susan Hodges, the founder of Citizens for Midwifery, uh, Javon Muhammad, like a lot of very prominent midwives from across the cultural groups um, signed on to our letter. And we were met with silence from Mana. And then a group called Birth for Everybody wrote um, a very long so-called rebuttal to our, our letter. We're basically just calling us hateful. And then Mana kind of used that as, as their response to it. It's been so interesting hearing from you and hearing from Courtney piecing together what was happening on the other side, because this had just happened. And then I did a doula training in New York City. And during the doula training, the first day, the first disclaimer was we don't say woman or mother this is the new speak if you want to be with it if you want to be modern if you want to be contemporary this is what you do and they referenced your open letter which really yes oh yes this was spoken about they said that um they were really disappointed that all these prominent midwives had signed on to such bigotry, you know, the same, you know, they always say hate, hate, bigotry. And, you know, I was a complete sponge. Like I was just taking in all this new information. So I knew that there was something 
I knew that there was a divide. I knew something scandalous had happened, but at that point I did no further inquiry. And at the time, part of the training materials um, included Ina Mae Gaskin's books. So this was, we had a four day in-person training and then the certification went on for nine months. And so during the course of the nine months, I think we were maybe four or five months in, they, they made a statement uh, the doula training organization made a statement saying that they had removed Ina Mae Gaskin's books. I should also mention that part of our reading material, one of the required reading uh, materials that we had was a book called Where's the Mother? Trevor McDonald's book, yeah. Yes. Yeah. She's yeah. a particularly venomous person, yeah. Yeah. The commitment to giving the baby breast milk after electing to have breasts remove and removed Mm -hmm. and so you know she she's able to pump a very very small amount of her own breast milk because there's some residual um, breast tissue left and so it really is framed as this hero's journey and I used this book you know this in this like um, window into that world to then spew more bullshit to my to my peers and uh like you know my attempt to indoctrinate others into why it's true that men also give birth and so that was like my entry point and this is the such a scary thing is that most women's entry is just kind of thrown right in having no idea like what was that there was a time where we only said women and mother and so the way that they framed and many other doula trainings have jumped on the the bandwagon to do this is as you know is is really um disturbing and it's really horrifying and i think that trevor is a good example of um just the the pure patriarchy of this of here is um a woman who's decided she doesn't like being oppressed on the basis of her sex. She, she doesn't like gender, which is a synonym for sexism, which is a synonym for it's for our sex-based oppression. And in a very individualist way, she decides to opt out and join our oppressor class and um, can walk amongst them passing as our, uh, a member of our oppressor class as a man, because she has taken testosterone to change her secondary sex appearance. Um, she's had a, a mastectomy to make her chest flat and then decides she still wants to utilize her female body to reproduce, but will not say that's a female function, is giving that power to our oppressor class, and then has the nerve to come into our most sacred spaces of birth and midwifery, where we have been oppressed the most throughout history, that all of, all of patriarchy is based on women's reproductive capacity. That's what it's about. She comes into our sacred space and says, you have to do everything I say because I'm a man now. And the people can't see, like, this is just the same story. This is just the same story. And then on top of that, she's like elected to remove her own healthy breast tissue, but she still wants to breastfeed, which she insists we now must call chest feed because it causes her dysphoria to say the word breast, even though men have breast tissue, men get breast cancer. And she then is exploiting women who have, who still remain in the oppressed class of of female under patriarchy to hook themselves up to milking machines so she can have have extra milk to, to pretend to be breastfeeding her child with a supplemental nursing device. It's so exploitive. And she's viewed as the hero in the story. You may have seen this, but the doula training organization, the doula trainings international 
had a conference, I believe it was 2018, and, and the title of the conference was, I'm here to dispel the myth that men can't give birth. Not trans men, men. Right. Right, because all throughout patriarchy, men have wanted the magic birthing power. And these women have found a way to gain a little power themselves and, and help the, the men claim birth as part of their, their purview, their domain. Fascinating. So when we wrote the open letter to Mana, serendipitously, that same year, the Mana conference was being held here in Albuquerque, in New Mexico, on, in our ground. And Michelle and I asked to have a booth there. And we were told we couldn't because it was hateful and bigoted. We were not allowed to have a booth to, with materials about gender identity, with materials about the threat of ideology, uh, of gender ideology to women's rights. So we decided instead to rent a suite in the hotel and hold a shadow conference while the Mana conference was happening. We did invite um, all the board to come. We, we invited people up to our, our shadow conference. We had great speakers. We had Carol, we had Kathy Scarborough, we had Michelle. Um, I gave a talk about women being forced to sell their bodies with, you know, kind of segueing back to the Trevor story, like the, the, the breast milk industry where women are being hooked to industrial milking machines, women selling eggs, women selling their wombs, all of this. Um, so we had a really great shadow conference. And at one point we had six former board members of MANA sitting in our room, just, just lamenting that here we were, all of these former board members of MANA and, and the current board would not meet with us, would not talk to us, wouldn't acknowledge us. They actively censored us the entire time. They followed us around. They had guards assigned to us and followed us around while, while we were there. Um, one of our members, Barbara Pepper, um, received the, the Saj Femme Award this year. She had signed the open letter and she, she's an elder midwife who's attended over 2000 births here in New Mexico. She trained me, she trained many amazing midwives, um, incredible elder. And she received the Saj Femme Award and when she went up to the stage to speak, they cut off the live tweeting, they cut off the feed, they erased her from the whole archiving of, of the conference because she spoke about standing up for, for women's sex-based rights and they just disappeared her from the record. Just fascinating watching it happen. And when we study patriarchy and we study how women's voices have been disappeared from history, from Sappho to to, uh, you know, the, the women in um, Hidden Figures who, who wrote all of the, the coding for the, they wrote all the, the calculations for the moon landing. Um, I don't understand why women today don't, don't get it that this is, that's not, it's a progression. It's been happening forever. We're watching female erasure right now as well. We're watching ourselves be written out of the record right now. And so many women are participating happily in our own erasure. Are these, do you think these doula trainings and these organizations are getting money? And, and if they're getting money, like what is, is, is the incentive to not, is the incentive that strong? Like the fear of appearing transphobic, is it that? Or are they also getting tons of money to implement these programs? I don't think they're getting money specifically for these programs. I mean, sometimes they are, but I think the way the the takeover of grassroots activism like that the capitalist capture of activism has worked is um if you want any money you have to sing the party line you, you have to go along with this 
I think it's important to look at the big pharma aspect because this is not just true about transgenderism. It's true, like look at what happened when Robert De Niro tried to show Vaxxed at the Tribeca Film Festival. And he was told um, he'd lose all the corporate funding streams for the festival. And he was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm Robert De Niro. I have plenty of money. I'm going to do it anyway. And then all of the independent documentary filmmakers received word that if they showed their film at a festival where Vax was being played, they would lose all of their future funding streams. And they all pulled out. So when you go against big pharma, you lose your funding. The same thing happens with um, if you don't want to take a pharmaceutical based approach to mental health and and addiction recovery. Um, you know, uh, recovery centers can't get funding anymore unless they're they're pushing suboxone and antidepressant medication and, and other pharmaceuticals for for psychological distress. So I think that that's how it happens. If you want grants, you got to sign onto the agenda. And then it's happening even at the lowest levels, too. I mean, I'm about to interview a woman who um, was selling iHeart JK Rowling uh, pins on Etsy and then get, got fired from her restaurant job, you know? I mean, there is that, too. It's not just about the funding streams. Like, it's a real threat to your livelihood. Watching this totalitarianism creep in and watching people who consider themselves the good people sign up to enforce it is really horrifying. Yes, so many women have lost their jobs. Um, I don't know if you've interviewed Laura Tanner, but she um, lost her PhD. Um, she was a PhD student at University of California, Santa Barbara. And on her personal Twitter account posted something gender critical and the students at her college demanded she be kicked out of a PhD program. And her advisors went along with it, even though her PhD project had nothing to do with gender ideology and transgenderism. It was, it was about birth and, and free birth. So it's happening all around. Female academics keep their mouths shut. They're terrified. You, you know, they'll come up to you in secret and say, you know, I agree with you, but I can't say anything. I'll lose everything if I say anything. So many women are keeping their mouths shut because not so much that they don't want to appear hateful. It's because they, they will lose their livelihood if they speak out about this issue. Have you had any experience with detransitioned women? Because of it, like the, the most kind of um, like lowball kind of like prodding that happens, I find in this debate that really um, keeps women in a space of, you know, am I hateful? Am I bigoted? Is the like, you must hate trans-identified people, or you must want them all dead, like this narrative. And I don't believe in true trans. Even with Abigail Schreier's book, she's pretty moderate in her mm -hmm. kind of analysis. Uh, you know, right. her, her kind of whole claim is that there are the true trans and then the girls who are being swept up by these cra this craze that, that, you know, who aren't actually trans, which, you know, is, is a kind of preposterous um, hypothesis because you can't, I mean, how do you test who the, who are the, who are the true ones and who are, who are not? I'm wondering, have you have you worked with detransitioned women? Because like these are the women. The way I see it is like these are the women who have come out of probably the most intense gaslighting that has ever happened to women. Right? Like, is there anything more emblematic of being a woman than being coerced? into thinking you can opt out of your body. I, I, really, I really see these women as like 
probably the most victimized, like traumatized, you know, especially the ones who have had double mastectomies and hysterectomies. And, and this, you know, sounds controversial because what I'm saying is these women weren't agents over their lives, right? Which no one wants to think about that we would somehow be influenced. Where do you find yourself as a women's healthcare practitioner? You know, what, what do you see with all this, with the Lupron and, and how do you, how are you situated in relation to that kind of injury that's happening? It's, I, I have worked with detransitioned women. I do know quite a few detransitioned women. You know, and honestly, at this point in, in my developments, um, I'm viewing this all under the same umbrella of the big pharma takeover of our lives and big medicine takeover of our lives. And I don't view um, detransition as much different than, than uh, a perimenopausal woman coming to terms with the fact that her life is worse after that unnecessary hysterectomy that was was promised to fix all of her problems or with a number of women I know who are infertile in their early 30s because they've been on depo since they were 13 um, or on and on and on. To me, it's it's the or trying, you know, trying to recover from psychopharmacology, the people who've been on SSRIs for 15 years and now are trying to get some sense of emotional regulation back in their lives. It, it's easier for me to understand it's all part of the same problem instead of, of getting into that that fragmentation that that the sick part of our culture wants us to be part of that individualization that this is these are all separate issues so there definitely is more of a political charge around the detransitioners but there's also a very po- big political charge around critiquing hormonal birth control critiquing unnecessary hysterectomy critiquing um, unnecessary cesarean and uh, the medicalization of women's lives in particular and it's happening to men too the medical system is a huge agent of, of, of patriarchal oppression and women's bodies are particularly pathologized and controlled by that yeah, and working with the detransitioners is very intense. And, you know, they're very upfront about what's happened to them. Some of them are of, um, you know, you can't sew breasts back on. You, you, can't, you can't undo, um, like they get reconstructive surgery, but you don't actually have real breast tissue. You don't have nipple response. You don't have sexual response in your breasts. Once you, you try to get the illusion of your breasts back, it's not the same. You can't put a hysterectomy. I mean, you can't undo that. You can't put a uterus back in the body. The pediatric transitioners who then detransition are particularly tragic. You know, when, when they talk about what's happened to them, that, um, you know, they, they never had a normal female puberty. They were given cross-sex hormones um, in, in adolescence. So they have um, like simultaneous uh, vaginal atrophy and clitoral hypertrophy. So they extreme, they have pain when they have sexual response because they're their vaginal tissue is, is atrophied, but their clitoris is hypertrophied. So they, they don't feel good, you know, and they'll never have a normal sex life. You can't have a normal sex life when you, your genitals had never developed normally. And some of those women have told me two in particular who are now activists about this uh, said um, they were teenagers and they actually believed they believed that what the doctors were promising them was at the end of this process, they would have a real functioning penis that sperm came out of. That was what their child mind believed transition would lead to, that they'd actually have a male body. Even the, the, the word sex change, sex reassignment, it's all just the most divisive marketing tactics that are repeated so many times 
that we start to believe, yeah, let alone children, but like just someone who isn't a part of that whole vernacular. You know, I, I, I experienced this, I, I witnessed friends who've repeated the same terms, who have been so effectively confused that they believe that it that it is possible that this like illusion of um, this magic machine you can just move through and come out the other end yeah. with all the same things and wow do you think that these doctors are going to be facing like tons of lawsuits in, in the next like ten years what do you think is going to happen well there's a lawsuit in um, in the UK right now that's very interesting. Um, Kira, I can't remember what is her Kira last Bell. name. Kira Bell, very brave young woman, and and she she's going for it. She wants she wants it to stop. Her her life has been harmed by the gender industrial complex, and she was a child when she was hoodwinked into doing these horrific things to her body, and consenting consenting to to doctors doing this to her. So I do think the women of the UK have really turned it around. Um, it's a much smaller country, even though they don't have a First Amendment and they don't have protection of free speech in the same way we do here. They do have a freer press, like they have more points of view discussed in their in their press than we do in the United States. So the women there have been able to get the message out and it has changed public opinion. You know, my friend Bree is the spokeswoman for Fourth Wave Now, and she said that they've had a very difficult time finding finding uh, both lawyers and plaintiffs. And, and part of it is the political polarization of um, most of the lawyers willing to do this pro bono to, to go up against the gender industry tend to be conservative, right-leaning, and within the detransitioners, I mean, you know how our culture is, we're so tribal about that, of like we will, people who are strongly in one political camp or the other do not want to contaminate themselves by being affiliated with, with someone who thinks differently or votes differently. So that has, has made it more difficult to mount a legal campaign here. I think also it's harder to sue for some reason. I, I don't know, I don't know how they're getting away with it. You know, like midwives and OBs are sued like for stuff that has nothing to do with the care you provide all the time. And here are these doctors removing children's penises and they, and they seem to be above lawsuit. Do you think it has anything to do with the parents' involvement? Like there's resistance perhaps from the people who would be covering the law, the lawyers fees, like the parents who are so humiliated. I, I don't know. I just think of all these parents who are perhaps waking up from this like cultish experience where they were unknowingly, unintentionally grooming their children for this like horror show. Right. Do you think that well, has anything to do with it? It's being marketed very heavily that if, as a parent, if you don't go along with this, if you don't transition your child um, with cross-sex hormones, with puberty blockers, with all these horrific drugs and surgeries, your child will kill themselves. Like, and it's over and over again. They're like, better a trans child than a dead child. Um, so of course the parents go along with it and then they get very invested. Anytime people get this rabid about defending an ideology, you know there's some cognitive dissonance there. You know, if, you, if you're really clear about your own beliefs, you're not really threatened by people disagreeing with you. Um, so I think the parents on some level know or there's some uneasiness, and but then that often feeds ideological activism, right? That if you, if you have to convince everybody else because you're still convincing yourself. 
So the parents, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a heavy weight there. Uh, Fourth Wave Now did a small survey of detransitioners and, and many of them said one of the things that delayed their detransition was their fear that their parents would kill themselves. Their fear that it would, it would psychologically devastate their parents if they said, I'm not actually trans, I, I, this was a mistake, what was done was a mistake that they were protecting their parents emotionally to the point of some thinking their parents might kill themselves. And that suicide narrative is so woven into this, you know, that this, that it becomes a real, um, a, a real thread of that, of, of what's going on there. You know, if, if we don't do this, people will kill themselves. And then this, the, the children ended up with that same narrative about their parents. That is unbelievable. I had I had I had not heard that before about the fear of the parents. I, I've the detransitioned women I've spoken to talk about fear, just the kind of embarrassment and the humiliation mm-hmm. after so deliberately, like you know, policing even other people to to all succumb to this delusion and then to flip. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I felt it just the, the tiniest, tiniest ounce of that, just having um, erased the words woman and mother from my website for three years and having, you know, sat down at family events and said, did you know that men give birth to, you know, like just the embar like I felt that embarrassment, but also, uh, you know, it's, I was indoctrinated like all the, you know, like most other women. So wow, that's fascinating that they're, that they're trying to protect their parents. Wow. Is it, do you think it's just also because the parents have been spent so much money and time and energy that, and like mourned the loss of their son or daughter that then they, it's just like psychologically too much to, it's like resurrecting someone from the dead a little bit. You know, it's so politically charged and I, I hesitate to use certain words, but um, trans activism has many cult like facets to it, right? Where it is like leaving a cult where your, your whole identity has been wrapped around this trans activism, my trans child, I'm going to go fight for my trans child, I, um, I'm going to tell the whole world about my trans child. And then if your trans child decides, like, I don't actually believe in gender ideology anymore, I'm sad about what happened to my body. Um, it's that is huge. It's like leaving any ideology. It sounds somewhat cliche, but it's similar of how, you know, I was raised very strict Catholic. I went to Catholic school, my whole, my whole family, very, very Catholic. Leaving Catholicism was really rough. And, and a big part was the rift it caused in my family. This is, um, there are a lot more ex-Catholics than there are detransitioners right now. The existence of the detransitioners is very threatening to the whole, the whole belief system, you know, and and that, yeah, it's very difficult to change. Wow. Yeah, the, I, the analysis of leaving the religion. And, and I spoke with a, a radical feminist writer uh, last week, and, and she, her name is Rhea M. Riley, and she really thinks the way to have these conversations with people about trans ideology is to emphasize that it is a religious belief and right. that we can believe that someone else believes they're trapped in the wrong body or there's a soul here and a soul there, but that doesn't mean that we also have to follow that religion. And so even creating that boundary when having these conversations, because the women that are coming to me, I'm hosting this, um, this group series for women who are afraid to talk about this 
and, and have maybe uttered a few words to their partners and no one else, they're terrified. Um, and so we're strategizing, you know, how to even articulate our thoughts. And, and the saddest part about all of this is that if you get to a place where you can articulate your thoughts, then it's like, okay, well, you're just an evil bigot. When I started talking about this on my platform, I got messages from women saying, oh, no, no, you just must be confused. You haven't been properly educated, right? The cultural competency mm-hmm. guys. And then when I said to them, no, I, I am very educated. Um, they were like, oh, wow, this is, I didn't know you were a turf." Right, right. So it's, it's, it's quite difficult. But, but yeah, the framing as a religious um as a religion is helpful, I think I found to be helpful. And also it's interesting you mentioned about leaving Catholicism. I've spoken to a number of women who are self-proclaimed liberal sec- uh, secular women who have now gone into the church for um, a kind of like, you know, what they would describe as a grounding in biology and like a, a kind of moral compass. Right. I think you benefit every woman interested in this issue to read Andrea Dworkin's book, Right Wing Women. She talks about that, of how if we only have these two camps, women are making these calculated decisions of which kind of patriarchy do I prefer? And and I do see many women being drawn to the conservative patriarchy right now because of the very issues you're talking about. And, And I have deep compassion for that. I feel like your option is like, be hooked up to milk, milk machines and like have an empowering job selling sex to, you know, to 15 men a day and uh, empowering in quotes, of course. And, um, you know, being gaslit constantly on the left with this gender ideology versus we're going to honor and revere you as a mother, but, you know, um, male ordination, female subordination is the name of the game. <laughs> oh, um, I have compassion for that. And Andrea Dworkin talks about that very clearly in Right Wing Women, which was written in the late 70s, I believe, and and it still remains incredibly relevant. It's hard because we've lost our feminist ground. Like we've lost Mishfest, we've lost Mana, we've lost the places where women really did have sovereign ground. And now with the, the medical lockdown, the medical totalitarianism we're living under, it's very hard to even gather. It's illegal to gather as women. So we're, we're in a rough spot for sure. You know, we, we use the religious analogy in the open letter as well. And I do think you're right that that, um, I, I come back to that all the time of how just because I strongly disagree with the tenets of Catholicism does not mean I, I don't believe Catholics exist. You know, of course, Catholics exist. Of course, trans identified people exist. I don't believe you can change your sex. And I don't believe, I believe gender should be abolished. What has it been like moving through the world all these years with, you know, the most unpopular belief system? Like, how have you found a really um, supportive, loving community? You know, I I think that I got really good training growing up very Catholic. (laughs) And um, I'm blessed to have been born a feminist soul. You know, none of the patriarchal stuff ever made sense to me, even as a little child. i I remember like making my first communion and being like, you know, I just, I don't really believe it. Looking around, wondering if everybody really believed it, you know, and I wanted to ask, but you know, you can't ask. Um, So I got, you know, like a rock tumbler childhood, you know, I kind of like polished me off and hardened me up. Um, 
being in home birth midwifery in the late 80s, early 90s, where, you know, that was very unpopular belief. You were, you were considered a child abuser and a potential murderer if you were promoting home birth, um, uh, choosing not to vaccinate my children, you know. So I've, I've always held what were very unpopular opinions, being very pro-abortion rights. Interestingly, most of the, the opinions I've held as an adult that are most controversial, people throw at me you're, you're, um, you're gonna, you're a child murderer as the, as the, um, the accusation of why I shouldn't have that, whether it's home birth or, um, vaccine freedom or abortion rights and now transgenderism. So I was pretty tough, but this particular issue has been the hardest. Uh, This has been the vitriol that comes at you and the power of the establishment that comes at you in this gaslighting form of it pretends it's not the establishment. It's, it's all so maddening when you go up against this issue. And it helped me to go back and read Mary Daly's work. Patriarchy excels at driving intelligent women mad. <laughs> because, because to anyone who's intelligent, it doesn't make any sense. If women are really like willing to think it through, it makes no sense. And this particular issue is so, is so maddening. And, and so... The trans activists are so vicious and so relentless, and they will go after your your livelihood, your community. But what I found was if I stood up to it and just held my ground, because I have a lot of community equity in my town, people stood with me. And, and even people who disagreed with me were like, she's not actually a horrible person. Let's like hear her out, let her have that opinion. And then this beautiful thing happened that many, many, many women were able to come stand in the, on the ground that I, I'd held and also say, they don't believe it. So in some ways, uh, we like to joke that um, Albuquerque in some ways is Turf City, USA. <laughs> we just have, it's a place where, um, where women are free to, to believe what they, what they want and free to reject gender ideology as a belief system. That's amazing. That's a place I want to live. Um, <laughs> well, you sure. can do it in your town. <laughs> I can do it in my town. And yeah, I, that's, that's such a beautiful message to, to share. And the that the gaslighting oh my gosh the maddening yeah it is it is truly truly maddening you've mentioned transhumanism but but where if we don't do something now if we don't continue to organize and if more people don't speak out where is this going i mean right now um the the gender ideology and the trans activism is almost like on the back burner for me compared to the the rest of the medical totalitarianism we're living under and um, the specter of a forced RNA modifying vaccination which will genetically modify the entire human population um, what's happening to the food supply what's happening even with the you know I mean you you and I live in different states it's appropriate to do zoom but um, but this should not be being normalized as the way we're teaching children and <laughs> this like this this virtual life that's happening. I do think people need to research transhumanism and understand that many men with billions of dollars have an agenda and it is to merge with machinery and technology and to make the body obsolete. And we as women need to know that our particular bodies will not be obsolete they will be human capital markets. So I, that's that's broad, but it's yeah. I'm I'm not super optimistic today, right in this moment. It's it's pretty horrifying what's happening. 
Women hearing this might think, wow, we are far off from that happening, but it's happening with surrogacy. It's happening, as you mentioned, with um, egg selling, egg poaching, egg donation, whatever you want to call it. And with the medicalization of all of human life, that um, people have been making such fear-based decisions around their births now for so many generations that that absolutely was part of the softening up of getting everyone to be so terrified of a virus with a very low mortality rate if you're talking about historical pandemics. You know, this is not the Spanish flu. Uh, what, what gets called the Spanish flu primarily killed people under 40. This, this is the exact opposite of that. But because people are already so afraid of the body, so afraid of death, so afraid of, of living a free life, um, it was pretty easy to shift into this complete to lock down under the guise of, of the weaponization of public health. And yeah, like you're saying, we're already there with women's bodies being commodities. I was contacted by a, a herbalist in Appalachia about um, a woman with mastitis and she has mastitis because she's selling her milk and she's pumping milk all day long to sell it. And, um, and that's happening to many women in, in Appalachia. And I just sat with that of like, of course, it's in Appalachia. We are part of the ecology of where we live. And that is like the most mind exploited. They're blowing up mountains to get the coal out of what's left out of the middle of the mountain. Of course, that's where it's starting that women are being industrially farmed for breast milk. Um, in the Philippines, it's already going on. In Brazil, the Clinton Foundation set up uh, women's economic empowerment initiatives that were basically... Um, breast milk farms where women go and get hooked up to milking machines and sit there all day being milked. Like this is already happening. And if we think about it of like how useful to the techno patriarchy that we can't call, we can't name the group of people that that's happening to. It's now transphobic to say that's, that's happening to women. It's just happening to people, you know, any random person that could happen to. I want to ask you if you've had an experience of changing someone's mind. I've had many people contact me and say, you know, I, I'd never really thought it for, through and now I really understand what you're saying. Um, many, many times. I think if you just hold your ground and keep talking and, um, and I try, I try not to, I, I don't consider myself a hateful person. I do get angry about this issue. I try not to stay so much in that place, but just hold my ground of like, I don't believe this ideology and this is why. This is why I think it's harmful. This is why I don't believe it. And I also mention frequently, like, I'm fine with people believing what they want as long as I'm also free not to believe it. And the same, like, if, people, if, if this movement had gotten to a point where people could be trans and proud and just claim the identity trans, that's, that's fine. It's whenever they insist that we have to believe human beings can actually change sex and that there's no difference between a man like Bruce Jenner and an actual woman, yeah, then it becomes very dangerous to women. And I'm not willing to go along with that. It's like, be trans and proud. I, I'm fine arguing that you shouldn't be discriminated against because you're a man and you want to wear a dress. I have issues with the medicalization of human life and pharmaceutical pollution and people peeing their birth control pills and hormone replacement and cross-sex hormones into the watershed. And that, that's a different issue. But, um, but even with that, like, okay, what you do to your body is your own, your own business, but don't tell me I have to agree with you that you're actually changing your sex. 
Right. That's a that's a really concise way to 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 put it. Just standing your ground and and refusing to to comply, and then but now then now we're moving into a place where to not comply is is can be you could be charged for a hate crime. I mean, right, right. And also to be politically homeless and to um, it's very interesting watching us all feel so much more welcome on the right <laughs> and um, really trying to understand the danger of that polarization as well. Like that's just as dangerous as the male, female gen- gender polarization in, in sexist ideology. Um, but at the same time, it has made me a lot more open-minded toward conservative beliefs and, and, I'm at the point where I'm like, I don't care what corporate propaganda streams you prefer and which member of the elite you like to vote for. Like, are you a nice person? Are you kind? Are you um, willing to fight for freedom? Those are, those are my uh, litmus tests for whether or not I want to hang out with somebody. Yeah, I think it's really important. The message you're, you're, you're sharing is, is that that can, that is its own other beast. Um, and so Maybe I shouldn't say beast, but it's a whole other thing. And, you know, I've been at, like I mentioned that I was a part of a constitutional rights summit. And, um, you know, the one, there was a guy who came up who, you know, who went up to speak, who was, you know, saying abortion is murder, abortion is murder. And I'm like, you know, obviously I don't, or maybe for those who don't know, um, I don't think abortion is murder. And then, but then he started to talk about, you know, Planned Parenthood as a eugenics movement, you know, Mm -hmm. and that I can get on board with that I that I agree with that I see and so getting more clear and this is where I think radical feminism comes comes into play in that there there is a political home. If you see radical feminism as as um, as politics or or woman centered or for women space Um, and then also you know kind of lamenting the fact that it's harder to have kind of dialogues and disagreements with liberal uh versus radical and then secular versus religious uh feminists because we can't even say the word woman mm-hmm. so you know that that even within feminism there is such a spectrum of of thought and dialogue which is just being completely crushed and so those conversations like you know with pro-life versus pro-choice women like i want to see those conversations happening like we, we these are these are important conversations i think that that need to be had and seen but but it's just maybe i'll maybe i'll do that next mm-hmm. but but yeah that's that's kind of to our detriment what what has happened is that we or even our diversity of thought has been um as women as part of the female sex class has been totally slammed it's fascinating how much less um, divisive the abortion issue is in my conversations with, with people right now. And I'm finding more women on what gets called the right or more conservative leading women um, willing to disagree on that issue. If, if you're also standing for, for other things and also willing to listen. And I've, I've seen some people changing their minds on that as well. And I think that's where like, um, we saw abortion get captured by big medicine and, and what Carol Downer and, and uh, the women of, of her generation were doing of um, DIY abortion, training women to do this themselves, um, putting it in women's hands is a much more revolutionary 
tactic than handing it over to Planned Parenthood, which is a horrible organization, disgusting organization that is absolutely sterilizing people with, with Depo-Provera and implants. And if, you know, all of those things, you have to admit, at least sterilize you temporarily, right? And then many women never get their fertility back. And then with their, they're the biggest promoter of cross-sex hormones. So sometimes talking to women on the right, um, they get a little flustered because their dialogue is, um, well, we're not out to punish women. Women are being exploited by the abortionists. And then you're like, well, what if the woman herself is her own abortion provider? It really makes them have to stop and think and undo some of their own, um, their own dogma about it. And many are willing to kind of go there and have that conversation. Another minefield, and often it ends up being frustrating, but I see more open-mindedness among my more right-leaning comadres right now than the liberal feminists where I'm, I'm kind of done with liberalism, the hypersexuality, the celebration of pornography, the, um, the promotion that it's, it's empowering to sell your body, the erasure of women. Like it's, it all, it's all kind of like Hollywood disgusting to me now. And that people aren't willing to look at any of that. They just buy this package of like, oh, I'm a liberal, so I'm a good person. So here, what's in my box? I'm, oh, I'm pro-compulsory vaccine. I love pornography. I, you know, <laughs> I think cross-sex hormones for children are great. And there's so much less critical thinking going on there. Not to, I just defamed a lot of people, but I think you really know what I'm talking about of that phenomenon. <laughs> Absolutely. I also feel totally done with liberalism and also just becoming more aware of the sneaky, sneaky ways it, it has, has found itself even in the holistic um, wellness realm. Something I've been thinking about recently is accounts on Instagram, yoga accounts, the so women who promote like natural healing and yoga and who don't wear makeup and are always in nature. All of the photography is just them doing yoga pornified. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think women are thinking, looking at these accounts, like, you know, who, who's maybe just done a teacher training or something. And they're like, how am I going to get a lot of followers? How am I going to get tens and thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of people looking at my page? And what you'll notice is that, that the women that have these high, high followings are completely objectifying themselves. I've even seen it with done with like wild woman stuff, you know, but like still insidious, insidiously pornified images. And um, it's tricky territory because, you know, obviously a naked body inherently isn't like porn, but, but using the algorithms and, and kind of playing the game is so tempting. It is so, so tempting. I saw another post the other day, someone who I follow, um, her handle is Rad Black Femme. She's also on Facebook, kind of screenshotted like a 20 year old woman saying, I just bought my first apartment. And the subtext is that this woman is a sex worker, right? She's a prostitute, right? She's a web, oh, however you want to call it. She does, um, you know, if, if she's not doing in-person prostitution, she's doing webcam work, right? This is how women can hit, unless you come for money or you're the heiress of something, you know, or these young women are making big money prostituting themselves, whether it's through the guise of like a yoga account or um, actual prostitution or a webcam stuff. And it just, it was just so sad, you know, it's just, it's just so freaking depressing. 
It is depressing. And it's another coup on the part of the patriarchy, right, to colonize women's minds like that, to so internalize the male gaze, and to believe that posing in those ways is somehow for yourself. It's funny, my mind goes to two tracks where there, I, I really encourage people to read Beauty and Misogyny by, by Sheila Jeffries, really great book about the beauty industry and, and the beauty myth and um, much more radical than Naomi uh, Wolf's actual book called The Beauty Myth. Um, Sheila Jeffries goes there of like, this is, it's painful and oppressive. Everything we consider beautiful involves pain and deprivation to women. But then I also think of that, that sitcom Crazy Ex-Girlfriend where she has this very funny skit just for myself. Like, I, you know, like, um, uh, get a tattoo on your lower back just for yourself. <laughs> it's, um, it's not just for yourself. It's about performing sexy. <laughs> I watched that whole series and I know exactly the scene that you're talking about. Yeah. Right. Wear six-inch heels just for yourself. <laughs> I get that with the shade. Every time I make a post about body hair, mm -hmm. I get one woman that says, I totally respect you. Your hair looks great, but, but I shave and I just do it because I like it. I like, and I'm just like, no, I know you think you like it. I know, I know that I, you know, even when I started to grow out my body hair, I was still looking at it saying, this is gross and ugly. Yeah. Like it took me at least a year to reprogram to not think that it was gross and ugly. I think that it's easier to say I'm doing this for myself than to say I'm doing it because it makes my life easier in an oppressive patriarchal culture where I'm going to be punished for not complying. And I have total respect for women just coming out and saying that. Like, my life is easier when I wear makeup. My life is easier when I perform for the male gaze. That's something, but, but that takes you, it, it's painful to admit the oppression women still live under. It's painful to um, acknowledge what's really, it's painful to wake up, you know? And, and a lot of women don't want to. And liberal feminism is such a, um, it's, it's just, it's such a good front for the patriarchy of like, oh, it's your choice. You know, you don't have to critique anything. You don't even have to think about what patriarchy really is, which is control of women so, so men have control of female reproduction, basically, right? <laughs> like it's, it's about, it's about your female body being controlled. That's a hard thing to start unpacking. It's easier to say, oh, I pluck my eyebrows and laser off my pubic hair because I feel better about it. You know, it's for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for speaking to that. And, and also something that's been coming up in the group series is, the just the chemical response that men have to porn and how when a man is saying that he won't get off if you you know have a lot of pubic hair for example he means it like it's actually true because he has been wired to only get off with uh, you know a sex robot essentially you know like not a human not an adult human female so to admit that is super painful also because it, it often jeopardizes many of the relationships, primarily like a romantic relationship, right? If you're going to undergo physical changes, not medically speaking, but, you know, to, to kind of settle in to what it means to not be um, self-objectifying and, and pornifying yourself, then, then it, it does jeopardize your potentially your most intimate relationships, unless that person's like, 
uh, we're also willing to kind of unlearn and, and do that that work as well, which isn't you know always the case. So the re yeah the rewiring that happens within I think the individual woman to see herself as not gross and disgusting, and then the other people as well. You know, oof, yeah, it's it's quite a task. It is quite a task. I have to say, I've been really reassured in my practice that the number of men. To be a man in my practice, they always already have to be a somewhat, um, you know, have an alternative practice. It's it's a very woman-oriented space where you have like birth imagery all over the place. It's a very, it's a womb that you're coming into. Um, so the men in my practice are are not, uh, they're they're outliers to start with. But the number of them who have told me in the last two years that they have been um, healing and recovering from porn addiction and that they're actively becoming anti-porn activists um, has been so refreshing because it does have that part has to come from the men as well as the women robert jensen's work is great gail dines's work is great on that yeah we are i mean the pornification of our culture is a big part of what we're talking about and it is a part of gender it's um if you're taught this is what it means to be a woman then you are just reduced to to gender, to sexual stereotypes, to um, performing femininity, and that's what makes somebody female. So all women are having to, we're having to free ourselves from that prison of gender. That's that's we're, we're born inside of it. You know, we have to get out of it. Oh, it's wonderful to talk to you. I'm, I, you know, I'm always happy to have these conversations, and I'm, I'm kind of wishing we lived close and we could sit and have tea and, and talk once a week about all of it. <laughs> no, but I'm thrilled you're doing this work. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit and visit my website, whosebodyisit.com.